Welcome, everybody. You are here for another week of No Coast Cinema, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I'm Tom Hush. What? Uh, where am I? Oh, uh, oh, no. Where am I? He came out of cryo sleep too late. Oh. Oh, God Where damn am it. I? Oh, I'm back. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I am your co-host, Connor Cornelius. Wipe that Wipe that uh, goop from your eyes. Oh. The, the oh. sanitary liquid that preserves your skin. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> 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 And we we're have, back. We have a show to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, wow. That's going in the top ten of intro. <laughs> well, uh, as you heard, we are Tom Hush and Connor Cornelius here on No Coast Cinema. Uh, it has been a little while. We had to take a little week off, but that's okay. We are back, um, and we're so glad to be here again. We have a fantastic show, fantastic show up for you today. Uh, a little bit later in the program, we talk to Kate Nibbs from TheRinger.com. She's a staff writer there writing about movies, tech, politics, all that good stuff. Specifically, we talked to her about an article she released and wrote called The Enduring Evil of It. Uh, since It is in theaters now, we felt like we need to talk about this. And she had a great analysis of the uh, the kind of tripartite existence of it, as in the book, the 19th. 1990 TV version and then now the 2017 version and Connor you've we've both seen it we've both seen it and uh if anybody has been paying attention to the to cinema news it has just been rolling through the through the uh box office absolutely breaking records left and right for seemingly every aspect of that film exactly for horror movies for movies released in September for R-rated films in general. Yeah, it's doing it's doing incredible. It's doing incredible and uh, we talk all about that with Kate Nibbs from The Ringer and then we cap off the show a little bit later. We'll be talking about a fall preview. Connor has so excellently drawn up a little fall preview for us for the most dreaded and anticipated movies of the fall season absolutely so we're going to be talking a little bit about fall movies but for right now uh normally this is where we would talk uh about news and um there's always tons of stuff to talk about in the film world but we want to dedicate this segment right here to um truly one of the uh most recognizable and um one of the finest actors out there uh harry dean stanton longtime character actor passed away at the age of 91 91 years old and um he was truly uh, a unique person truly truly a unique actor um he spent a lot of time early on in um like western tv shows you know like that gunsmoke style stuff and which he, really established himself as a character actor that yeah. would endure throughout the remainder of his career absolutely and um i i figured i just want to talk a little bit about our personal experiences with him um, I think the first time I was introduced to Harry Dean Stanton as an actor was in Alien. Um, he plays one of the one of the crew members of the fated space truck Nostromo, and uh, he, you know, has a very famous scene where he's he's one of the first to get bumped off by the fully grown xenomorph, um, save for John Hurt who gets the che- he gets the full chest burster, <laughs> but uh, Harry Dean Stanton 
you know, famously wisecracking uh, engineer on the Nostromo. Uh, I think, though, that I really... That's when I first kind of started recognizing his face, and he would appear in different places that I could never really put my finger on. I would just see him, and I'd be like, oh, that guy. Exactly. And um, he's one of those people. Yeah, exactly. The the typical character actor thing. Oh, you mean that? I know that guy. Like, oh, he's I can't in, believe he's in the Avengers as a security guard. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's just all around. Um, Harry Dean Stanton, funny enough, I I believe he appeared in the Avengers. He did. He was a security guard. Wait, oh, I thought that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, for real. Shows how much I know. Yeah, he finds Hulk. He finds mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Banner. That's right. Um, so, yeah, he's just all over the place, and a lot of people really know and love him. Um, Connor, what was your first experience with Harry Dean Stanton? My first experience with him, it wasn't extremely personal it's in a movie he's in a movie that i've seen probably a dozen times just because it was one of those old vhs's that i Mm -hmm. grew up watching uh up in the north woods of wisconsin green mile where he plays see i feel like every time someone's like oh he's in this and you're just like well i'll be damned yeah well i'll be well i'll be damned i'll be damned (laughs) uh and he just pops up everywhere um i think a movie that if you really want to understand Harry Dean Stanton, uh, I think you just and so many people will probably be talking about this film, even in this CNN article uh, where we, um, you know, have some of the facts about Mr. Stanton uh, cites this movie, uh, Paris, Texas, directed by Vim Vendors. Um, that was his first well, his first really big recognizable leading role. Um, he is the protagonist of that film, and um, if you haven't seen Paris, Texas, definitely get out there and watch it. It is fantastic. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton is fantastic in it. It is easily one of my favorite movies that I discovered almost by accident. Um, I was just I was just messing around. I wound up in the Criterion Collection section of uh, Barnes and Noble, saw Paris, Texas, and I was just like, I really like this cover. I like this title for some reason, and I just bought it. I um had no no idea what it was about who was in it and i just sat down and watched it and kind of later found out how well known this movie was and how well received it was uh famously cited as kurt cobain's favorite movie Mm -hmm. and um i i heavily suggest that if you've not seen paris texas definitely go out and and track it down track it down and watch it in honor of mr stanton uh connor i wanted to ask you about character actors and this um this kind of distinction that people place on actors in hollywood when they're not leading uh men or women but they just these actors that just kind of exist yeah they just sort of show up and they are you sort of expect them to stick to a certain mold right Mm -hmm. it's pretty typical you get people they look a certain way they're used to playing villains or they play you know mental pain like literally any sort of distinction you could force onto someone like how uh there are people out there that literally just play russian gangsters because they can do the accent and they look like russian gangsters exactly yeah or john torturo who has to sort of play this like perpetually manic uh character you know and he does you know he does john torturo is an incredible actor uh, and, fantastic and i really not to say that calling an actor a uh, um Oh my God! I'm a blanking. character a actor. Character actor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a character actor. I don't want to pigeonhole him, and I don't think that is necessarily pigeonholing him. But 
He's a fantastic actor. Mm -hmm. But probably the character actor nearest and dearest to my heart is Nicolas Cage. Uh, is Nicolas Cage a character actor? And no, I don't think he is. I think that he's extremely versatile, but I would make the argument that the, his most... Um, I, I am also struggling to say enjoyable roles. Maybe just like the f most fun roles are his just like over-the-top gonzo. Yeah. Things. And that's just what people... That's sort of the meme of Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Right? I, I feel like people who started out... It's kind of funny. People who are character actors and... I'm going to say this. If n character actor is not a pejorative, no. and I hope that people do not use that as a pejorative. It is a way of describing someone. And I think there's maybe there is conversation to be had, and I'm willing to have it about uh, distinguishing someone as a character actor versus something else. But I think character actors are really the you know the lifeblood of filmmaking because they are the ones who show up every day they're not going to get the recognition they're not going to get you know the big bucks they're not the stars yeah they're not the stars people will recognize them and i think that they will turn in great performances usually but they are there to to act they are there to play a role and they are working actors it's what they do and i transplanting that to nick cage it seems like he's kind of stepped into that place because financially he wound up in a pretty bad situation oh yeah absolutely and um owning an island and several mansions <laughs> around the world will do that to you I think. despite being a coppola yep despite that um he he's gone into the character actor mold i think mm -hmm. where he he people expect something specific out of Nicolas cage he's like a weird hybrid because everybody knows who Nicolas cage is oh yeah he's got big name recognition but he's doing character bits almost even though he's the protagonist most of the time he's yeah. doing it in a character actor sort of way so that's interesting to think about to have him as a character peg him as a character actor exactly yeah um so if you guys have a favorite per a favorite actor that's considered a character actor please let us know you can uh put that on facebook where no coast cinema uh we'll podcast going yeah we'll throw a poll up there you know who are your favorite character actors um and we'll see we'll see who you guys recognize and who are some of your favorites definitely comment and uh share with us and you can also uh find us on twitter at noco cinema um and tweet us let us know who are some of your favorite character actors what are some roles of harry dean stanton that you really enjoyed and um what really brought him to your attention if you have a touching tribute to mr stanton uh please let us know um, and speaking of touching tributes uh anybody that is familiar with harry dean Stanton, and if you're not i really recommend just even just going on google images and you will recognize this man's face mm -hmm. Uh, but for those of you who do know this, Harry Dean Stanton is an enduring member of David Lynch's bench. And as everybody knows about David Lynch, he loves to work with the same actors in very you know different ways. And he penned a, a really heartfelt tribute to to Harry uh, yesterday, which was released. Yeah, I've I've got it right here. Um, the great Harry Dean Stanton has left us. There went a great one. There's nobody like Harry Dean. Everybody loved him, and with good reason. He was a great actor, actually beyond great, and a great human being. So great to be around him. You are really going to be missed, Harry Dean. Loads of love to you wherever you are now. David Lynch. Very fantastic. And um, if you want to see his work with Lynch, if you've been watching the recent revival of Twin Peaks, um... You can catch Harry Dean Stanton there, or if you want to catch uh, character actors Harry Dean Stanton and Nicolas Cage <laughs> in the same movie, pop in Wild at Heart. 
Just do it. Just do it. All right. All right. Uh, we're going to be back in just a little bit with Kate Nibbs talking a bit about the new movie It and her article, The Enduring Evil of It. Stick around. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I am one host, Tom Hush. And I'm the other host, Connor Cornelius. And we are here to uh, talk a little bit about a movie that has been lighting up the box office, and that is the new adaptation of Stephen King's It, uh, directed by Andy Muschietti. Muschietti? Muschietti. Yes, the it's best about way a hungry to mime it. that lives in a sewer. <laughs> Wonderful coming of age tale. So if you're if you haven't uh, seen it yet, it's it's spoiled. It's about the mime. Yeah, anyway, damn it. <laughs> uh, but it is a record setter. It opened at 124 million dollars, uh, which is the largest opening box office for a September film, and also for a horror film, and the uh, second biggest debut for an R-rated film, and that's behind Deadpool, which did total gangbusters. Hard pressed to uh, to catch up to that one, but um. You know, with it coming out, there's been a lot of talk about it, a lot of think pieces coming out, and there was one that I really, really enjoyed. It's called The Enduring Evil of It, and you can read it right now over at theringer.com. And online, uh, we have the author of the article, Kate Nibbs. She is a staff writer for The Ringer. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, first of all, I want to start out. Really enjoyed the read. It was a fascinating look into uh, kind of the background of it. You touch on the kind of tripartite thing that it it exists in, which is the book, the 1990 film, or sorry, TV film, and the uh, 2017 adaptation. And uh, I think you did a really good job describing all three of those. So thank you for writing that. Oh, no problem. And I actually reread the book and rewatched the TV film just so that I, you know, got the details right. And it was interesting to revisit them because I, I had watched the movie and like read the book at like a weirdly young age. I think I was like 11 or 12 and uh, revisiting them at 30 was definitely different. Wow. Yeah. So I, I wanted to talk about that. You did mention in the article that you did have this childhood fascination with it, um, both as a TV film and as a book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what fascinated you at that age about the uh, story? Sure. Um, so I I watched the, the film first and I, I guess it was a TV miniseries, but I came to it through like renting VHSs at uh, a local video rental shop because it was the 90s <laughs> and um, I was allowed to rent it because it was not rated my parents wouldn't let me watch PG-13 movies so it was like the scariest thing I could access um, so I think that played a hand in why I liked it to begin with but um, it was just it was like the scariest thing I had ever seen but it also had this great like sort of coming of age tale it was it was sort of like Stand By Me in a way, which was also like a Stephen King adaptation where it was a bunch of friends hanging out, riding bikes. And so I enjoyed the fact that it was like a mashup of a horror movie and then this nice story about like young kids being friends with each other. Um, 
And then when I read the, I read the book and I don't even think I understood half of it at the time. Cause when I was going back and rereading it, I was kind of shocked by how like graphic and dark it was. Um, but I liked it for basically the same reasons as the movie. Like it was this nice story about friendship and, um, it also, I really liked how the book went into like the history of Derry, this town where it haunts the children. Um, it was like a cool fake historical novel in that way. And I kind of wish that the movie that just came out now had like gotten more into the like history of evil. Cause that was one thing the book did really well. It's really interesting to me that you read uh, and watched those movies when you were so young and then you came back to it so many years later. Not unlike the film. Not I unlike suppose. the film. Yeah. <laughs> so what, how did your experience change uh, when you reread the book? Well, I had completely, I don't think I understood some of the darker stuff when I was a kid. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen, there's been stuff on the internet about it, but the book features like a really weird scene where all the kids have sex. Yes, Um, we we own the sewer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I swear I like don't remember reading that as an eleven year old. I don't, I don't think, think I Stephen King that remembers that. Yeah, well, I don't think he remembered writing that. Yeah. And now he looks back on it and he's like, Oh, so that did happen. It's really jarring. And so like reading it as an adult, I was like, What the hell am I reading? <laughs> um and then there were other things like some of the some of the jokes are like definitely not PC. Like the character of Richie does all of these like funny voices and a lot of them in the book are like very racist. And so it was weird to read that. And I know it was written in the eighties. Um, it, it was like just one of those things that didn't age well. Um, but I was actually impressed by like the overall quality. Of, it, it held up better than I expected. Actually. I want to talk about the, uh, you mentioned in your article the strangeness of the source material, and as you said, with uh, some of the darker elements that you didn't pick up on the first time around. Um, in the in the novel, there is a uh, talking turtle. Uh, there is the ritual of Chud, and of course, that infamous sex scene in the sewers. And both adaptations uh, of the novel kind of get rid of those details in sh- for kind of a more streamlined approach. Do you think that works for making it into a film? Could we see, you know, maybe a longer cut of these to um, get in that history of dairy or maybe include those stranger elements? Um, the talking turtle, I think, I think maybe they're going to bring it into the new movie because I think they sort of made little references to turtles in the new movie. So maybe the part two will get into it. Um, the ritual of Chud is just like very, like it's definitely one of those things that Stephen King doesn't remember writing. Cause it's, <laughs> yeah. like, like, it's like, I don't know. It's just really weird. And I don't know how they would bring it to the screen because it's just like, it's, it's like a, I don't even know how to describe it. Cause it's, it's described in this really weird way where it's like they engage in like mind warfare. Um, the like lead protagonist Bill and Pennywise the Dancing Clown do. And it's I don't know how they would render it on screen basically. Like or I definitely don't know how they would render it on screen well. Um I also think that like a talking turtle could be really, really corny really, really easily. So maybe it's for the best that they left it out. 
when I was leaving the theater after seeing the 2017 movie, um, I was really asking questions about sort of the physics of Pennywise and how it really worked. And then I just sort of went through a couple of these scenarios in my head where like, okay, well, if he's doing this, then why does it matter? Like, why does it matter if he he's like cutting himself up into pieces? So why does it matter if the kids are doing the same thing to him? And I went through enough of these and it got to the point where I just sort of realized I don't want to know the physics behind it. And it sounds like maybe the ritual of Chud or whatever might be <laughs> sort of <laughs> might be delving too far into that. I don't think people really want to know necessarily like what it is, right? I mean, are we satisfied with it just being a manifestation of our fears and some sort of institutionalized, community-based evil? I think I am, and usually I get really annoyed if, like, a movie doesn't have a consistent in- internal logic. But I feel like with this particular movie, it it was all right. that It, it didn't completely make sense. Um, although I would say, like, the ending where it was so explicitly... <laughs> Can I can I say spoilers on this podcast? Yeah, I think I think we can go for spoilers at this point. We'll warn everybody. Okay. Okay. Um, like at the end, how they sort of defeat it by basically just deciding it's not scary. It was like a little too cut and dry for me. But at the same time, I th- I thought it worked. Like it was scary. Um, some of the stuff I would have like slightly more explanation for um like the character of mike when he first saw it he it was sort of all these hands reaching out of a door and it's like you've read the book there's this whole backstory um about a fire that took place and i think in the movie they say that his dad and mom died in a fire but in the book there's this like long there's flashbacks to this um fire that kills a bunch of people and um his dad is there but survives and um it's like one of those things that's more about how it has sort of like poisoned dairy in general and uh i liked the backstory and so i do wish there would have been like a little more delving into like why it appeared in various ways for the kids but overall i thought it was pretty good so this story for all its strangeness and for the length of the source material uh you say that it resonates with people on a pretty big level and as we've seen at the box office that appears to be true and all the nostalgia for the 1990 version as well um and i like that you mentioned that it has two qualities mainly that make it resonate and that's pennywise and the kids themselves and I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit why those two qualities are so endemic to the story and making it work for everybody. Sure. Um, well, as as someone who is kind of afraid of clowns, and it's a pretty co- common fear, like in both uh, film adaptations, Pennywise is like scary as hell. And Tim Curry was definitely the best thing about the 1990 miniseries. Like, the performance he gave was just genuinely, like, spooky. And Bill Skarsgård did a great job uh, in the 2017 version. So, like, it is a very scary monster. Like, the fact that it is shape-shifting and is attuned to the fears of the people that it's trying to scare. And the fact uh, the book goes a little more into how, like, it sort of uh, like brainwashes the adults in the community to like 
not take the horrible things that happen in the town as seriously as they should. It's like this idea of a sort of like structural evil invading a town, I think is very, it's a scary monster. Um, and especially when it appears all the time to children as like a clown with really sharp teeth. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's a good monster, just plainly a spooky creature. And then the kids, like, I don't think any of the adaptations or the book would have worked if you didn't like buy the relationship and friendship between the children. Uh, I really liked the 2017 movies dynamic with the kids, even though, I like wish their characters would have been a little more fleshed out. They're kind of archetypal, but uh, you like thought that they were all friends with each other. And yeah, I think that sort of makes people feel emotionally invested in not wanting them to get eaten by a crazy clown. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you see all these kids yeah. together on screen, I, I think that's the part that really worked for me the most when I saw it was uh, despite, as you mentioned, the characters are a little bit flat. They are kind of reduced to their, you know, traits, especially certain characters. Yeah. Um, and, and the sad part is, is that I was not, you know, someone that watched the 1990 version. I knew about Tim Curry and his performance, but I was kind of hoping of going in and seeing, like, maybe I'll really connect with these kids and stuff. And I think mm-hmm. overall Bev was my favorite. I felt like she got the most justice done to her as a as a more fleshed-out character. But meanwhile, there are characters who are reduced to uh, this character is African-American, and that's what he, he does. And this guy mm-hmm. is Jewish, and he's learning his bar mitzvah. Exactly. And then also the uh, – the I can't remember the kid's name, the um, the one that sits in the library because – He's the new kid. I can't remember his I name. Think it's ben. 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 I don't understand what they did with that character because in the spoiler alert in the movie, he sort of is the instrumental one that saves Bev from Pennywise. And then mm-hmm. at the end, he just sort of gets sidelined by Bill is the main yeah. character. And they're all sitting in the clearing together. Ben just walks. I don't know. that. <laughs> I don't understand what they were doing with Ben. Maybe they don't really know what they're doing with him either, but. Yeah, I was like, I was like, Ben deserves justice in this situation because he wrote the nice poem, and I, I was like, why are they trying to make this a love triangle? Like, I don't want. Yeah, it was, it was kind of flat. Um, I also, I thought that Mike, the character of Mike, got shortchanged in the movie for sure because in the book and in the 1990 adaptation, like, he is the one who is the librarian. Um, and they sort of gave that ro- that to Ben, um, and then they didn't really replace it with anything. So he was just like the homeschooled person of color in the group, but that was basically all he got. Like, and that's not a character; that's just facts about him, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that they can like adjust that because he was one of the he's one of the most interesting characters in the book and in the movie it felt like he was just there to round out the gang absolutely did say in an interview recently that they are going to be delving into that character more in the second uh film that he's going to have a much more central role that's good yeah and i'm like i'm still gonna watch the second movie i still thought the first one was pretty entertaining but yeah that was kind of jarring and also i thought that I agree that Bev was probably like 
the actress that played her, I thought, did such a good job. Yeah, um, there was a definite maturity to what she was doing. She and Bev in the in the story in the book, uh, she really has one of the mo- most traumatizing backstories. With you know Pennywise is evil, I guess, influencing her father to do. Um, I mean, really unspeakable stuff. And so I think she she really handled that with a lot of maturity and a lot of uh, a lot of grace. Yeah, and also that yeah, that actress is just a really compelling screen presence, and I liked her a lot. The only issue I had with Bev in like the 2017 movie was in the book and in the 1990 movie, she is the one who actually like maims Pennywise and makes him go away uh, by shooting a slingshot full of silver at him, which is like also one of those things where they don't explain how it works. But it doesn't really matter, right? Um, but like in this movie, they turn her into a damsel in distress, and I, I didn't really know why they did that. It seemed like a strange thing to do, like to make a movie like less yeah. progressive in 2017. And not only does she maim Pennywise, but doesn't she lead sort of lead the charge in like to the Pennywise's lair in the book? Yeah, she She's doesn't like get the, captured. The ringleader, right? No. Right. She doesn't get captured. She's like the ringleader, and she's the one who like physically hurts the monster. So, yeah, that was sort of that was a change I didn't really understand. And it it wasn't like it was horrible what they changed it to, but I just like to see her as a character with a little more agency, because, especially because she has such a traumatic backstory. Mm-hmm. It's like making her physically aggressive makes more sense than turning her into like a completely passive captive absolutely um i want to talk about the 1990 predecessor and uh how the the, both that and the uh the new adaptation are going to be split into two parts child and adult Mm -hmm. and um since you watched the 1991 i i hope i'm not stepping on toes here when i say the adult half of the tv version may have left a little bit to be desired in terms of uh (laughs) quality there i'll go so far as to say nigh on unwatchable yeah it's really bad. When I, I actually kind of fell asleep during the adult part when I watched it this time and, like, had to shake myself away. Like, uh, John Ritter is Ben, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's probably the, the, like, most decent adult cast member, but none of them are great. Like, the acting is pretty bad and also the ending to that movie is completely ridiculous (laughs) yeah it um do you does it give you high hopes that maybe the uh the adult half of this new 2017 adaptation is going to um look at that and say let's do a better job maybe i'm sure they're i'm sure they're trying not to look at that at all and just like (laughs) let's pretend that that just didn't happen yeah exactly yeah um, Although I think it would be cool, Sessa Green played Richie as a child. I think it'd be cool if he like could play Richie as an adult this time. Oh wow! Um, I wouldn't mind that. Yeah, but that's like basically the only overlap I want to have happen. Uh, you mentioned in your piece that Stephen King has very little patience for what he calls academic bullshit. Uh, do you agree <laughs> that over analysis is kind of unnecessary to enjoy King's work? I think that a lot of his work is does is kind of resistant to analysis um, because it's like entertainment. Um, and I don't mean that disparagingly. It's like if you're sort of searching for 
like cosmic meaning in some of his thrillers, you're just not going to find it. I think he was being kind of unfair in that quote because he was talking about um, a movie about people analyzing The Shining, but not his book, the mm-hmm. Kubrick film. And he hated that famously. He did hate it, but like that's a really good movie. So oh yeah, yeah no, <laughs> we're all Shining fans here. <clears throat> yeah, and um, I don't know. I mean, I think it can be done. With with any sort of cultural analysis, I think there's, like, a very fine line between making a meaningful insight and just reaching for something that's not there. Um, And I don't think that it necessarily deserves, like, really involved think pieces because, I don't know, I I think the source material is primarily, like, an entertaining read it's not some sort of like philosophical tract yeah for for 1100 pages it certainly is like <laughs> you know it, it goes down pretty easy it's uh i think i heard someone describe it as a budweiser you know you can, stephen king's writing is a budweiser you can just kind of drink it all day it does you know if you think too much about how it tastes then you're not going to enjoy it so just enjoy the buzz and at the end of the day you can't sleep <laughs> <laughs> Um, on the like uh, jacket of the version of it I bought to reread it, someone, I don't remember who, someone said it was the Moby Dick of horror novels, and I was like, all right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you could say it's a good book without making that comparison because it's not. Oh, wow. Well, um, so, Kate, after hearing that you've rewatched recently the 1990 It films and uh, yeah. the 2017 film, I had one final question. Bill Skarsgård or Tim Curry? Oh, or both. You know, and I'm putting you on the spot and you have to choose one of those three options. Honestly, Tim Curry. Boom. Um, Whoa. It's like he is the evil clown in my mind forever. Mm-hmm. And Bill Skarsgård was good, but like Tim Curry is the evil clown in my mind forever. Just really quickly before we let you go, um, a lot of people do have this nostalgic connection that you that you talk about in the article to that 1990 film. Uh, and that's, you know, that, I, I feel like that's a driving force behind the success of this movie. Do you do you agree that, like, the nostalgia is really what pushed this over the edge for people? Yeah. And I think that Stranger Things was sort of like heavily borrowing some stuff that that 1990 movie did but then stranger things also was such a success that i think stranger things as a cultural phenomenon also helped it yeah definitely wet the wet the whistle for this type of movie yeah well thank you so much kate we really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about this the name of the piece is the enduring evil of it and you can read that right now at uh, theringer.com. Kate Nibbs, staff writer for The Ringer. She writes about movies, tech, politics, you name it. Kate, where can people follow you on social media? Um, Twitter is at Kate Nibbs. It's, my last name is K-N-I-B-B-S, and Kate is spelled how it normally is. All right, excellent. Thank you again, Kate, and you have a great rest of your day. You too. All right, back in just a bit on No Coast Cinema. We're going to be doing our fall movie preview. Stick around, everybody.
Tom Hush and Connor Cornelius here from NoCo Cinema, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. Or should I say cinema? Cinema. Cinema. If you're in Italy. If you're in Italy. And uh, if you are in Italy, buongiorno. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, right get now, on the good foot. Get on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just coming out of our great conversation with Kate Nibbs about it. Um, and that's a great fall movie. I think that really is kickstarting for the box office this kind of fall movie season. Yeah, and so following a pretty dismal summer. Oh God, the, the one of the worst. I think it was the worst since about two thousand six. Uh, I think it was since two thousand one. Since the really, night. I think that it was the worst. Maybe August was the worst month since September eleventh. My God, my goodness, my goodness, my godness. Um, well, hopefully we're back into an upswing uh, with it, and hopefully some bigger summer, uh, bigger fall films coming out. Uh, Connor, you have a list here of your most anticipated and most dreaded yeah. of the fall season. And so <laughs> why don't you just guide us through your line of thinking here? What are you What are you excited about first? Right. Welcome to fall. The leaves are changing, and people's ticket stubs are beginning beginning to be sweaty in their hands. We're going to start this off with the most dreaded for the fall movie season. And uh, the reason that I want to start this out is because there are some movies which you will see trailers for. And you will see uh, very uh, meticulous marketing campaigns for. And you probably will see them in theaters. But maybe you don't want to in in the long run. Maybe you don't want to. So... Here are just five of uh, the upcoming movies for this fall that I have selected to hopefully uh, give you a little bit of information about and uh, maybe warn you away from them. Yes. So we're going to start it off here. There's a, a movie called 9-11, uh, which uh, stars Charlie Sheen. But what it essentially is, is it's an elevator movie. If you've ever seen, what is it, Devil? Yeah. Where it's just, so it's going to be six people trapped in an elevator, except 9-11 is happening in the, in the, you know, in the vicinity. Yeah, they're, they're trapped in the World Trade Center in an, in an elevator and they're trying to, uh, trying to survive. And it's uh, obviously going to be a a tragedy. Um, and I've read online that, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's relatively tone deaf, um, going so far as potentially xenophobic. Really, How, in so far as like that they are um, that they're like casting the uh, what was it? They're they're going to say like. I'm trying to think of how to word this. Are they basically going to be like, terrorism, bad, exactly. like that's exactly Islam, bad? Yeah, it's just supposed oh, to. Why am I not surprised? Yeah, right. Jesus. Moving on, uh, another installment in a franchise that we all thought was dead. Uh, fall is a great time for something like that. Jigsaw is coming out, uh, and he's going to presumably be putting not-so-innocent people in overly uh, overly thought-out, overly dramatic death scenarios. Yeah. it's um, Is it a prequel? I'm not sure. Neither, I mean, we're we are seven. I don't even deep. care at yeah. this point. <laughs> to um, be, I'm going to be totally honest. Can't f- we just kill this franchise already? Yeah, I feel bad because you know there are some people out there. The original Saw was pretty great. It launched. Um, it was James Wan. Yeah, that that directed the first Saw, Saw film, and he has had a pretty incredible career 
in in horror he did insidious he did the conjuring the conjuring 2 furious 7 so i mean that movie was and it it was a movie that did kind of um create a zeitgeist for horror like absolutely it, it made torture porn like a thing in, and that's in not cinema. to say that the franchise doesn't have some interesting um I don't want to say thematic elements, but plot-wise, there were some interesting twists and turns along the way yeah. that they toyed with their enduring um, plot that they just had in every single film. And there were interesting things that happened, but once you're seven films into a franchise and then you're just... It's like it's like Annabelle and The Conjuring. Like, how in-depth can this universe that's not very deep really go tell that to the fate of the furious <laughs> i'm telling you space space is next for god like all right we've thrown cars out of a plane we've thrown cars underwater on now the- we're gonna throw a gt up throw some rockets on that baby and take her up into the stratosphere <laughs> when this baby hits 88 miles an hour we're going to be in space <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he just sounds really unsure about it yeah uh, <laughs> can, we, can i get this mustang into stratosphere deep fast nine deep well okay i have to throw this in here a friend of mine uh, came up with a great idea for the Fast and the Furious franchise. <laughs> where to go next? Um, this is completely off topic, but I have to say this. That's fine. <laughs> this will maybe this will wind up on the cutting room floor. But so in the Fast and the Furious franchise, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, Paul Walker was killed in a car accident, which is very unfortunate. And I apologize. This is going to be a little bit insensitive, but in his in his in the actual universe, Brian, the character of Brian is not dead. He's alive. He just, he was killed by fatherhood, as it were. Like, he becomes, he's like, I'm a dad now. I can't do this anymore. So that's why he's not in Fate of the Furious. They're just like, they even reference him. They're like, maybe we should call Brian. And they're like, no, no, he's got a kid now. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> um, you could have just not, you could have just pretended, but... What he thought was he should do – they should kill off Brian's character – kill off Brian in the universe to, to mimic real life. And then, you know, scene here, Vin Diesel is visiting. Oh, it's a God. dark and stormy night, and he's visiting <laughs> uh, the grave of Brian, and he's paying his respects. And he's oh, I miss you, Brian. <laughs> like, he's Vin Diesel. Yeah. And, oh, it's Vin Diesel. That's hey, I miss you. And uh, all of a sudden, like, there's a crack of lightning, and a single rotting hand shoots out of the grave. God damn it. And it's just like, and then cut to title, The Flesh of the Furious. Yes. Oh, my God. That's actually. That is where you take that. Shout out to uh, to my buddy Nick, Nick Medley, for coming up with that idea. Flesh of the Furious coming out November? Maybe. I hope so. I think so. All right. But, yeah, Jigsaw. I'm going to skip it. I'm going to sleep on that one. Yeah. It is uh, really not piquing my interest. I have almost no reason to go watch that movie. I stopped watching Saw after maybe like three. I, I finished the third <laughs> one. I was like, this has no merit to me anymore. I'm finished. What? Uh, do you have any more? There's uh, a couple more things that I'm dreading. Yeah. Uh, I'll try to burn through them real quick because they're not super noteworthy. There's a movie called Friend Request. Which oh, yeah. Is literally haunted cell phones, Tom. It's 
it's like that shitty movie that Sarah Marshall starred in, in that fictional dystopia <laughs> where Russell Brand was a cool rock star. <laughs> we all know that doesn't exist. Yeah. Russell Brand, that's enough. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Jeepers Creepers 3, the third installment in one of my favorite, ironically favorite franchises in horror. It's kind of a a sore point, though, because a lot of people are pushing back against this because the director has been convicted for uh, sex crimes. I actually forgot about that. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of a weird thing because they, the charges in question happened well, before he even made Jeeper, Jeepers Creepers. Like this, Jasper's Crapers? Jasper's, Jasper's Crapery. <laughs> um, the, the charges in question, I think, took it was in the 80s when um, he was still working in film when he, um, what was it? He, uh, I, I don't know what the correct term is, and I apologize to everybody. I, I don't want to speak out of term, but there were, uh, where he committed sex crimes against minors. And, uh, you know, children. And I think that's why the pushback is. It's one of those interesting situations where it's like, can you like a fran like, can you like a franchise despite the sins of... Can you separate the art from the creator? Yeah, like Roman Polanski. Right. Like, that guy is under, like, he's under investigation. Um, Woody Allen. Louis C.K. Louis C.K. Not under investigation, but... But, like, there there are are some accusations lobbied against him that we have to take seriously, um, and it would be wrong not to. So, Jeepers Creepers 3, I don't know. A little bit of a controversy surrounding that one. Yeah, that absolutely. Said, we got really serious really fast. I yes. apologize, but well, we have to talk about it. You have to talk about it, and I will say that I did not know this before I started watching them, and I am a fan of the films. Yeah, I... You can't help it, especially the first one with Justin Long. Right. And he returns in the second one as an Is... eyeless uh, cornstalk. <laughs> oh. But I will say I started out as a fan of the of the film, not a fan of the director, mm-hmm. and it's not difficult to not be a fan of that director. Um, but it I started a as a fan, and I would like to hold on to the, the positivity of it. Yeah, for sure. All Up right. next, <laughs> there's a film called Geostorm, and uh, it's being oh, hugged by yes. Dean Devlin. I'm going to do it in this way. Dean Devlin's doing another disaster movie, and he made up a word to get there. <laughs> Geostorm <laughs> is about a satellite that literally controls the Earth's climate, goes haywire, and brings about a cataclysm known, uh, presumably, by the actors in the movie <laughs> as the Geostorm. Dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, J- I I know Jake Wiseman, and frequent listeners will know Jake Wiseman. He will absolutely be seeing that movie. <laughs> <laughs> he has told me numerous times that he will absolutely be seeing Geostorm. So, I mean, just uh, be ready for that, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> and now we're going to move on uh, to like the lighter side of the fall season Things that we want to see. Things that you want to see and should see. Um, we did uh, talk a lot about It, so I'm not going to belabor that point. However, It, I think, is a fantastic film. Um, and anybody that hasn't seen it should definitely go watch it. There are some much more interesting films coming out that uh, don't deal with Freddy Krueger-esque mimes and sewers, clowns <laughs> and sewers. Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. This follows William Moulton Marston, who was played by ex-Dracula, Luke Evans, the original creator of the 
comic character. I'm sorry, I can't get past X Dracula. (laughs) X Dracula, Luke Evans. Tried to start the monster universe, but he's in this. (laughs) He is playing the original creator of Wonder Woman. Uh, William Moulton Marston was an inventor, a psychologist, a feminist, and somebody who challenged the censors of the time with his ideas about sexual bondage and submission. So we're going to really be getting a deep dive into this man's life and this mm-hmm. man's uh, personal uh, struggles. Yeah, didn't he also? I've, didn't he also invent the uh, what's it called? Not a lie detector. I mean, it's a lie detector test, but it's um, it's got a proper name. Oh, I can tell you. Let me count the ways. <laughs> To be human is something enough. stenograph is that it? Yeah. Well, he basically invented the lie detector test, and um, which is why part of the reason that Wonder Woman has a lasso of truth. And uh, there's 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 a lot of there's a great book out there um, called like the Secret History of Wonder Woman that you should definitely check out. And um, it goes into all this stuff. So I hope that the that this movie can get in a little bit into um, why Wonder Woman is such an important character. Because a lot of people would be, you know, want to write her off and just, oh, she's just Wonder Woman. Like, no, dude, Wonder Woman was a big deal, is a big deal. Like, Wonder Woman has been a symbol for a long time for a lot of different things. So I'm glad that they're I'm glad that they're exploring it. And on the heels of Patty Jenkinson's wildly successful film oh yeah <clears throat> probably the in my opinion the only really worthwhile uh dc film to watch in mm-hmm. their in their cinematic universe that they've been creating over the last several years mm-hmm. um moving along there's another film out uh that's going to be coming out called suburbicon it's directed by george clooney if you've heard of him for the tequila guy uh <laughs> It's got a script by the Coen brothers. Joel Coen did not direct it, but the script was written by the Coen brothers. Yeah. And it stars Matt Damon, Oscar Isaac, and Julianne Moore. And I'm going to, full disclosure, I don't even know what this movie is about, but I'm going to go see it. Yeah. I mean, just on pedigree alone, it, you should give it your attention. The Coens are great. The Coens are fantastic. Um, and in terms of the plot, it's it seems, and this is just from watching the trailer, what I gathered from it. Matt Damon is a suburban father who owes money to the mob, and the mob ends up killing his wife. And it's basically just a standoff of him, his son, versus the mob, uh, represented by Oscar Isaac in this situation. I guess he owed, owed money to a loan shark or something like that. So that's where the uh, the central tension of the film comes from. Uh, but yeah, if you're a fan of the Coens, well, I mean, George Clooney has worked with the Coens on, you know... So many movies. Yeah. Hail Caesar, uh burn after reading mm-hmm. so he i feel like if they're attached to it and george Clooney is involved it should be good it's his first directorial uh you know it's first directorial effort since the monuments men which i believe he also directed and he might what he was in it too yeah he was he directed and starred in it so good for you george Clooney. i loved you on general not general hospital er yeah good er. Er. <laughs> oh i love i thought it was er no no it's not <laughs> all right Moving quite along here, we've got another film called Lucky, which concerns actual nonagenarian character actor and enduring member of David Lynch's bench, mm-hmm. Harry Dean Stanton, yeah. who passed away recently. He stars in a movie about an atheist looking back on his 90-year cache of experience on planet Earth, and what, how poetic of a final film is this? Right. He's starring in it where Harry Dean Stanton historically was a supporting actor 
Mm. And it's just a really uh, a poetic thing that you will be able to get to see. It will be a special experience no matter what. Yeah, and I think it's almost like David Bowie and Black Star. Yeah. Um, it just kind of... Uh, it was it was almost it's eerie how well it just came together. Yeah, it's it's really bizarre. Rest in peace, Harry mm-hmm. Dean Stanton. So those are your big your big look for the fall? I've got two more. Um Dennis Villanova's Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yes. I'm really excited about this. I know. A lot of people are being very cynical about it. Um, because they're just like, why did Blade Runner need a sequel? I understand that, I think, but That's I also valid. just want to see how do you, I always get his name wrong? Dennis, I think it's Villanove. 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 I'm Villeneuve. not sure. Yeah, I feel well, like either I, way, I pronounce it differently every time. Yeah. Oh, well, either way, director of Sicario, Prisoners, Enemy, Arrival. Arrival. The dude's had a great track record, so I'm excited for that. And um, if this goes well, maybe Dune will be sweet. Yeah, I got to <laughs> say, the trailer for Blade Runner has continued. I've been just rewatching it, and it's getting me really excited about what he's going to do with Dune. Um, there's just some glorious, gorgeous shots in the yeah. trailer alone. If he can bring back Roger Deakins to do Dune, which uh, Roger Deakins is doing Blade Runner 2049 with him, I'd, I would definitely be uh, fully psyched. Although they have had some troubles with the with the score. Um, yeah. They had Johan Johansson mm-hmm. was going to do it. And, and now, now what is it? It's, it's Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer's back. Yeah. What happened was is that Johan Johansson was doing it, and then... Um, he Hans Zimmer stepped in to help, and then Johan Johansson like stepped away from it. No one's he hasn't been able to talk about it because of contract. But now Hans Zimmer is doing the score, which is just like eh, I like Hans Zimmer; he's great. But like, how many movies of this ilk does Hans Zimmer do? Like, I don't want another Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, thing. Um, it's not all silver and gold. No, not you know, at all. Jared Leto's in it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, last one. Mother. Darren Aronofsky, oh, Jesus Christ, writing and directing with apparent sweetheart Jennifer Lawrence, a blessedly non-CGI Javier Bardem, <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer, and Ed Harris are rounding out a great cast for a movie from which I I don't know what to expect. Yeah, I don't think anybody knows. They've been really pushing it, and as far as I know, it's been dividing people really hard. Like some people think it's like depraved. Oh yeah, I've heard it's really uncomfortable. Yeah, so I guess we'll just have to see it for ourselves. Um, it does have a seventy percent certified, I believe, from that fir- from that debut um, in festivals when pe- when critics were watching it. It was getting a getting about seventy certified fresh. So we'll just have to see how it does, especially coming off of it. Oh yeah, um, going from one big horror release to another. Uh, I can speak for the what was it? Right now, a movie that is in theaters. Uh, American Assassin probably not going to do so well. Hey, Michael Keaton's in it. Uh, <laughs> it's basically it's basically Tom Clancy for millennials. It's, even though it was written, I don't know when American Assassin was written, but it's like the I've I've seen parts of it. And it's just it's just Tom Clancy BS. Yeah. If you ask me. Well, I will say this: I'm glad that Darren Aronofsky is done making non-religious Bible epics. Yeah. Yep. I never saw Noah. Yeah, me either. I skipped on it. I actually heard that it was underrated, but at the same time, I'm not really interested. I'm not a Russell Crowe guy most of the time. He's really got to prove it to me if I'm going to watch Russell Crowe. If I'm going to give Russell Crowe my attention, he's got to earn it. Okay? You hear me, Russell? You hear me, Russell? You son of a... (laughs) (laughs) You bastard. (laughs) You jerk. I loved you in L.A. Confidential and the nice guys. Nice guys. 
It's a great movie. All right. That's a little bit of our fall preview. Some of the movies we're going to be watching. Um, let us know what you're watching. What are you excited for? What do you want to do well? Um, we'll probably give you an update when we get to the holiday season because we got to talk about Star Wars. Um, and we got to talk about what's coming out. And as we get closer and closer to awards season, um, hopefully it'll uh it'll it'll be a good good rest of the year i want to finish 2017 out strong i really want it to because there's been some great films um and around that time we'll also be talking a little bit about our picks for the best films at the end of the year so all right this has been no coast cinema keep looking forward yeah keep looking forward to new episodes uh next week we are going to be talking to mari ulrich she is a writer and director based in chicago and we're gonna be talking to her about her recent trip to venice for the venice film festival and also about um one, one of her shorts and her free, her feature length, uh, Faster and The Alley Cat, uh, a little bit about the process of those two and how they came to be, the writing, the direction, the cinematography, all that good stuff. Connor, will you join me again next week? I'm going to step back into my cryopod and just set set the timer to next week oh, God. around this time. Can you, can you at least get it the right time so you're not opening up right when we start the show? I'll do my best. Oh, God, get the scientists on it. All right. I'm Tom Hush. I'm Connor Cornelius. And this has been No Coast Cinema. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.